Would you remain standing for the reading of God's word? Our passage is 1 Samuel chapter 13, it's verses 1 through 23, and if you're going to use a Bible there in the seats, that's page 234. As you find that, we have dealt with the fact that uh, God's people wanted a king despite the warnings. God relented and appointed them Saul, and so Saul is ruling as the king. And the people have come to realize that with the anointing of Saul that they had chosen opposed to God's will, but God showed himself gracious, reminding them that if they would follow God, God would continue to rule and bless them. And so as Saul has been appointed to be the defender of God's people, we pick up this morning in one of his first calls to demonstrate that. Let's ask that the Lord would bless the reading of his word, that we would grow in our ability to trust. First Samuel 13, 1 through 23. Saul lived for one year and then became king, and when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison, the garrison of the Philistines that were at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people following, followed him, trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offerings. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now the kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went out from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with him stayed in Geba of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped at Michmash 
And the raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah, to the land of Shual. Another company toward Beth Horon. Another company turned toward the border that looked down on the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. As we recount this day of preparation for battle on the actions of Saul, the threat of the Philistines, Lord, would we come into your presence to hear your word? to listen to your command, to receive good news from your servant. Lord, would I fulfill that task of proclaiming your word faithfully in all the ways that I fall short, would my words be forgotten. Bless this time for our good and for your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen. Sometimes fear can change the way that we see things and cause us to do frankly, weird and strange things. Fear made me walk three miles to get coffee because I had met a woman and I thought she was pretty incredible and then I felt like I needed to ask her out. And I needed to think about that. And so I decided instead of driving to the coffee shop that I would use the 45-minute walk there and back to pray. I was afraid. Because a friendship looked like it might be more than a friendship. And to risk that friendship seemed scary. Rejection seemed scary. Going off to seminary shortly after the beginning of a relationship sounded scary. And so I needed that time to ponder whether I was willing to face my fears and ask Rebecca out. That is just the fear of being rejected of having a woman say no to a date. How about when things are more serious, when fear is a matter of obedience or disobedience? When it's a matter of blessing or curse, when it's a matter of life or death? If I can decide that the way to solve my problems is to take a long walk just to get coffee, what kind of gymnastics will we go through to confront fears that are much larger, much scarier in our lives. Saul confronts a very serious situation. He is now king, and and we need to confront the reality that one of the hardest things in translation in Scripture are numbers, because there are often errors with the numbers from one script to another, and oftentimes there are lots of idioms in how they use numbers that can get confused, but it seems that, that at least Saul has been king for uh, two years, if not longer, but there's been 
movement. He's supposed to defend God's people from their enemies, and so he's entrusted some of the men that he's gathered to Jonathan, his son. And, and at first, Jonathan has success. He goes and he defeats this garrison, this garrison of the Philistines at Geba in verse 3. This, this garrison threatens their ability to trade. It threatens their safety. It's, it's within the bounds of Israel. And so Jonathan goes and he makes a stand. A victory is won. But the result is a backlash. And, and though the, the numbers are probably not the numeric, numerically correct, it's probably not 30,000 chariots and, and 6,000 horsemen, but the thousands probably refer to units. Regardless, the passage is clear that it is an overwhelming force that has come out to meet Israel. It, and they come out and they encamp at Michmash. And earlier in the passage, we find that this is where Saul was encamped. So Saul is encamped at Michmash. Jonathan goes and defeats the Philistines at Geba where they are encamped. So they come to attack where Saul is encamped. They come with overwhelming force. They are camped against him, ready to attack. And, and so Saul has been ruling for a little bit of time now. He's had his victory over the Amalekites that we read of earlier. He, he defeats the threat to their country from the east. But now from the south come the Philistines. What is he going to do? And as he waits for Samuel, as things seem to get worse, as people are leaving, remember, he starts out with 3,000, and then at the end of the passage, after Samuel leaves, we see that he numbers 600. He has a fifth of his original forces. Saul is confronted by an enemy, by danger, and in his fear, he makes a tragic mistake. Instead of waiting for Samuel, as Samuel said, to come and make the sacrifices in preparation, Saul takes it upon himself. And in so doing, tragedy befalls him because he loses the opportunity to establish a dynasty that no longer will his sons after him, no longer will Jonathan be king after him. God will not establish a covenant line through Saul. But Saul will be the last of his line. And as we read more about Jonathan in the coming weeks and spending time in 1 Samuel, we'll see that that's a great tragedy because there is so much to commend Jonathan as a future king. The tragedy is not only what happened because of Saul's decision, but how he dealt with the decision. How being ruled by fear caused him to forget the rule of God and lead himself into tragedy. This morning, as we look at this passage, as we see Saul confronted with a difficult decision and, and real fear and has to make a real choice in real time that affects real people, we need to confront the fact that we ourselves find ourselves in fearful, dangerous situations. Some of those things are, are physical danger. Some of those things are relational that we fear. We, as we confront our fears, we are called this morning not to be ruled by fears, but examine our responses to see whether they are the right. Whether we will be like Saul, who will fail to depend on God's word and God's rule, or whether we will be ruled by our fear. We're going to look at four responses to fear this morning. At denial, despair, determination, and dependence. 
that we might examine our own responses when the things get difficult and scary in our lives. The first option for us is denial. Now, this is not one of the options that's really overtly presented in the passage, but it's still one that we need to deal with. That when something fearful comes up in our lives, that there can be a tendency to minimize or ignore it in the hopes that it will go away. You, you have that noise from your car, and you just hope that, okay, you drive it a little more, and that noise will go away because you're afraid of what the mechanics bill is going to be. Or, or more seriously, you have that ailment that you've now had for six weeks, now it's six months, and yet you don't want to go to the doctor because you don't want to know what it's going to be. And so we can confront fear with denial of the real dangers, of the real struggles that might be before us. A more Eastern ideology would say that fear itself is dangerous. This is kind of conveyed by Yoda in Star Wars who says, fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. And as we are talking about being ruled by fear, it is indeed very dangerous to be ruled by fear. Fear can lead to anger and to hate and to suffering, but also to ignore real struggles and real suffering can lead to further struggles. Sometimes Christians can take a form of this attitude. We read very often in Scripture, do not be afraid. But at times we can take this to mean that our fears are unbased and that real faith causes us to ignore danger. See, the interesting thing is, when Samuel confronts Saul, he says, you have acted very foolishly. Foolishness is the opposite of wisdom. What does wisdom start with? Proverbs 1 tells us that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. That is an awareness of the reality of God's presence. Now, it is not doesn't have to be terror because it just takes seriously the presence of God. And so to act in a way that deals with the holiness, the love, and the covenant promises of God. And so it is a terrible thing to fear the Lord if we are in sin and we are in rebellion. But to fear the Lord is a good thing if we are walking in obedience because we acknowledge him as present. Saul, in one way, fails to acknowledge the reality of God And so he doesn't take seriously the consequences. But our passage this morning takes danger and the basis for fear seriously. It talks about the numbers of the enemies. This is a real military debacle. This could be a complete defeat for Saul and his forces and for Israel. Not only are there the numbers, but as the passage This shows us what happens after Samuel's departure. As the Philistines come out, they they go to four different places that essentially encircle Saul's camp so they can escape. And oh, by the way, as verses 19 through the end of the passage tell us, Israel is outgunned. They're bringing knives to a gunfight, as the saying goes, because the Philistines have controlled the market on iron and bronze. That while they have access to blacksmiths and they have tools... Israel had very few tools, and the tools that they have have been dependent on going to the Philistines to be sharpened, and they're being charged outrageous prices so that they're going into battle 
with those present among the 600 with only two swords. The passage takes the danger and the basis for fear seriously. Scripture doesn't call us to close our eyes to the dangers that we face. Rather, instead, it invites us to trust in the Lord. Proverbs 3.25-26 says, Do not be afraid of sudden terror or the ruin of the wicked when it comes. It's not saying these things don't happen. Why? It says, For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. The basis to not be ruled by fear is the presence and the provision of God. Or in 1 John 4, verse 4, after John has warned the church of spirits that can lead them astray, it says, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. We're not called to deny the dangers and the difficulties that we face in life to try to wrestle with our fear by denying those things, but instead to look not away from the things we're struggling with, but to look to God. We need to be cautious that we are being ruled by our fears when we choose to ignore them or the real dangers or the real opposition we face as Christians. Next, there can be the response of despair. And this seems to be the primary response, not so much of Saul, but the people following Saul. As the Philistines begin to gather against them, notice what is happening. As they gather together, when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the passage makes commentary. They didn't just feel it, it was true. The people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. This invites memory of the time where God's people were oppressed by the Midianites before they were delivered by Gideon. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. So strong is their fear, so strong is their response to fear that most of them are in flight mode. And they, some of them go so far as to leave the promised land, crossing the Jordan. Remember, God had promised this land and promised it to them as a blessing. And yet, as they are facing their fears, ruled by their fears, they are abandoning the prospect of blessing that God has provided for them. Not just leaving it, but, but giving it up as, a, as if abandoned, as if there is no way that they can win. And in so doing, they are forgetting the promise of God. Notice the description of the Philistines. That they are described as like the sand on the seashore in multitude. But the promise of God to Abraham, by which Israel is established, by which they have come into the promised land, is this, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. When all they see is the danger in front of them, when their fears are are shaping their sight, they have lost sight of the promise and the blessings that God has offered them. Often despair can leave us feeling as if there are only one or two choices. In this case, stay and die, or run and live. That fear can make us feel trapped as those without recourse. 
This is what happened when Israel was pursued by Pharaoh after they left Egypt. They came up to the Red Sea and they see the mountains on one side, they see the sea on the other, they see Pharaoh coming and they said, we're trapped. We're going to die. God must have intended us to come out and die. But there was another option. There was God's provision. There was God parting the Red Sea so that they could escape and that he might be glorified in demonstrating his power. Often there are more responses than we tend to see at first. There are more actions that we can take. There are more possibilities. This is why when we are confronted with situations that cause us to be afraid, one of the simplest but most profound things that we can do is to pray. We can pray for God's deliverance, and that might be God's provision for us. But one of the things that God can do for us in our prayer is God can give us a reminder of his calm, of the peace, of his presence with us. And in that calm, we might be able to see with God's eyes the options, the responses that we have heretofore ignored. God doesn't want us to be ruled by fear, either to deny it or let it control us so that we live in despair and give up on the blessings and possibilities that God has for us. When we're ruled by fear, we can also respond with determination. And this is really what we see Saul doing, trying to take things into his own hands. Now, the passage says he's waiting seven days. And it implies that Samuel has told him he will come after seven days. And there's enough freedom in the Hebrew there that the possibility isn't that seven full days have fully passed and, and Samuel hasn't showed up. It could be the seventh day and, and Saul is just is itching to move. But regardless, we, this sets up a contrast with what we read earlier in chapter 10, verse 8. As Samuel announces to Saul that he's going to be king, as it comes out of left field for Saul, and we wrestle with Saul being kind of an uncertain figure, in chapter 10, verse 8, he gives him the same instruction, go to Gilgal, wait seven days for me, and I will come, and I will make the sacrifices with you. And though for Samuel doesn't tell us what happened after that, it's implied that he obeys, that he goes and he waits for Samuel because he went and obeyed Samuel with regard to the rest of the signs, and Saul eventually became king. But here, when given the chance to obey the same command, he doesn't. Whether it's two years or, or, or longer, in the time that Saul has been ruling as king, he has grown accustomed to being the one that makes the decisions. To seeing himself as the one in charge. Even Jonathan's victory is described as his victory. But now as he comes to deal with a fearful situation, notice how he responds by taking the lead. And perhaps this is familiar with you for those of you who have known people who, as adults, who have become bullies because they were accustomed to being bullied. That as they confront their fear, one of the ways they wrestle with the fact that they're still controlled by fear is to no longer be the sufferer, but to be the inflictee, to take control. And here, Saul says he's going to take control. Samuel hasn't shown up in the time that he thought he would. He sees the enemies. He sees his people afraid. He sees the dwindling numbers, and he says, fine, I'm going to take action despite 
what Samuel said. Notice as he does so, what he says to Samuel when he finally comes. Samuel comes and he says, what have you done? Hear what Saul says. When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash. You notice how he begins fo- pointing the finger? Well, it's, it's their faults. It, it's the fault of all the people leaving me. It's the fault of you for not showing up on time. It's the fault of the Philistines. So I, I had to force myself. Notice he said, I had to force myself to offer the sacrifice. Just like denial and dread don't see things the way that they are, this stance causes Saul to fail to see that he's part of the problem too. That it was his lack of trust, it was his lack of obedience that's brought him to this situation. When we are afraid, when there is potential danger, when there is a situation that challenges us, one of our responses can be to say, I'm going to take control. That the only way through this is for me to knuckle down, for me to bear down, for me to put my nose to the grindstone, and I have to get through it. And that's the only way it's on me. And when we confront our fears that way, it can lead to utilitarian approaches. That is to say that the end, the goal, justifies the means. Saul says, well, the end is to make a sacrifice to God so that we can be successful. So what does it matter if I'm doing it in a way disobedient? But notice what that does to our view of God. This sacrifice which is meant to honor God, to deal with sins, to be reminded of covenant fellowship with God, becomes a tool whereby we get God to do what we want. Saul says, in order for us to win, I've got to offer this sacrifice, so I'm going to offer the sacrifice so that we can win. Fear doesn't just change the way that we see the situation. It doesn't just change the way that we see ourselves. It can change the way that we see God. Would much have changed with Samuel in the way that the sacrifice is made and the effects of the sacrifice? Likely not. But the difference was the attitude of Saul that said, I have a right to do this because I'm facing it these horrific odds and it's on me I must act I think it's clear that these three reactions we've described so far of denial of despair and dependence are three options that we're encouraged not to take because they lead into disobedience to danger to foolishness the contrasting response that we can have in the midst of fear in order not to be ruled by fear is to depend. Firstly, to depend on God's word. True obedience is not empty doing of our duties, but true obedience honors God as good. We obey God as saying, even if I don't understand why you have called me to do this, even if I don't know the outcomes, I am doing it because I trust you, Lord. And Saul failed to depend on God's word through Samuel, the appointed prophet. And so he trusted in himself instead of God's provision, and therefore he does not obey God's word. In the midst of fear, it can be tempting to say, yeah, but. God says to do this, but he he doesn't have in mind how dangerous that is. 
or how difficult it is or, or what it might cost me. Maybe I can set aside this command to be gracious because of how I'm being treated. Maybe I can set aside this command to rest and worship because of how bad work is right now and what might happen if I don't work today. Fears are looming large in those moments instead of the dependability of God who speaks to us his commands for our good. The second way that we can depend is on God's character. There's something really interesting here is that Samuel declares this judgment. You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God which he commanded you. He takes away the kingdom. You kingdom shall not continue. And how does Saul respond? Does he acknowledge it? Does he say you're right? Does he confess? Does he repent? No. Con- consider David's response. David's sin through his his through the murder of Uriah through his abuse of his power and what he does with Bathsheba is far greater sin than what Saul does here. And yet God doesn't take away the covenant promises from him. As soon as Nathan says to David, you are the man, David says, I have sinned against the Lord and repents. And we have a beautiful description of his confession and repentance in Psalm 51. Jonah is sent to Nineveh, even though he doesn't want to go. And he's sent to Nineveh to declare that judgment is coming on Nineveh for their sin. But why does Jonah not want to go? Is it because Jonah doesn't want to declare coming judgment for Nineveh? No, that's not why he doesn't want to go. He wants judgment for Nineveh. He knows they're the bad guys. He knows they're sinful. The reason he doesn't want to go is because he knows the compassion of God. And what happens? They repent of their sins and Nineveh is spared of impending judgment. Saul has forgotten the character of God. And we don't know whether if he had overtly repented of his sins, whether God might still have allowed for the line to go through him. We don't know. that. That's beyond the scope of Scripture. But Saul, in depending on himself in his own determination, has forgotten to depend on God's word and the character of God, both his protection for the people, his compassion, and his forgiveness. Jesus and the disciples were afraid when the storm rose up on the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus says, why are you afraid? It wasn't because there was no storm but because they had failed to trust in him and what he had told them and what he had shown them about himself. A small victory brings a significant backlash. And Saul is ruled by fear. Brothers and sisters, this is this has raised for me, particularly this week, some of my own struggles. And I rarely overtly talk about abortion, but I think it's appropriate to do so. Not because we shouldn't talk about abortion, but because so much weight often comes with it. But most of you are aware that this week there was leaked in the media that there is an opinion, maybe not the final opinion, but an opinion from the Supreme Court that could lead to the overturning of Roe versus Wade. 
and that would result in the freedom to outlaw abortion to protect the unborn. That is a potential victory. But it seems like there's 30,000 chariots gathering right now. It seems like there is a strong backlash. And in the midst of that, I've been fearful. Are we ready to respond if Roe is repealed? Are we ready to care for the mothers and the unborn in the midst of this? What will happen? How will others with differing opinions respond? I've been tempted to deny what's going on and just shut off the news and ignore social media. When I've seen particularly hateful and vile things said in response to this news, I've been tempted to respond in kind, to show people who disagree why they're wrong and why they're wrong for being so wrong. In the midst of my fears about what might come, I've forgotten to trust that what God's word says is good and true, that he loves the unborn and we are to care for the aged and the unborn and everyone in between. And so it's right and good to pursue what's just despite what might come. And that I can't fix what's about to come. But I can trust in the Lord and his compassion in our care for those that God brings to our path and our support of ministries like Care Women's Center and our love for our neighbors. As God has shown me my own fearfulness and tendency to sin in response to fear, he's also reminded me of the other side. There is all the political rhetoric about abortion and about those who would defend the right to it. But there is also the women and those around them faced with the actual choice. Who in the midst of a situation find themselves fearful, often making this profound and strongly moral choice out of a sense of fear. Who might be tempted to respond by ignoring the reality of what they are considering. Who might be so dreading what might come next for them? The, the shame, the loss of potential freedom, the, the responsibility suddenly put upon them that, that they run from the potential blessings because they are ruled by their fear. And others that just say, I'm in control. I'll fix it. I may be afraid. This may be a challenge, but it's on me. I think it's our call as Christians to acknowledge the fear in which many women and those around them make this decision, not because fear excuses a sinful choice any more than Saul's fear excused his sin, but the point is to point them towards something that they can respond to in their fear better in dependence on God, to point them to the truth and goodness of God's word about the value of the unborn in every life. And to demonstrate the character of God who is compassionate, not just in the midst of their choices, but for those who have made that choice in the past to show that that choice has not excluded them from the possibility of God's compassion, love, and forgiveness. That we might show them that we who are called to demonstrate the love and compassion of God might be dependent to be with them in the midst of their fear and the difficulties. That there might be real costs, there might be real sacrifices, but we are there for them in the midst of that. Brothers and sisters, as we confront that reality, it will lead us to deal with our own fear, to acknowledge that we often are prone to make unwise choices or even sinful choices with our finances when we're ruled by fear. That we're tempted to fear 
and let fear run the way that we parent our children. Fear of the world, fear of what will happen to them. Fear of loss of control. That fear can change the way that we witness to the world. Brothers and sisters, there are real challenges, there are real dangers in the world, just as the Philistines were absolutely real before Saul. But God calls us not to be ruled by our fear. When Luther said, here I stand, I can do no other, he was facing the emperor of the largest empire known to man. He wasn't denying Charles V. He was standing on the reality of God. When missionaries go into war-torn parts of the world, it's not that they can't lose their life, that they might lose the lives of their children, that they might suffer disease and danger, but it's they go trusting in the call of the Lord upon them. Brothers and sisters, whether the fears that we face are, are simple rejection by our neighbors or our colleagues, whether, whether it is the, the loss of something that we treasure, whether it is even life itself, the encouragement of Scripture is not to depend on, the, on how big the thing is we are afraid of, but to look instead to God. To say that we can depend on what God says about the world and what is right and good for us. And, and when we fail in our fear, when we are ruled by our fear, to, to depend on His compassion. That He will not hold our transgressions against us, but He will make us new in Christ. My prayer for us as we respond to whatever's in the news, whatever's happening in our families, in our neighborhoods, is that we would not be ruled by fear, but we would be ruled by faith in God because fear is not our king. Jesus is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are a Father who protects and watches over us, who desires our good, who, as we confess this morning, will see to it that everything works out for our good in our salvation, that we do not belong to ourselves, but you comfort us with the truth that we are yours in life and in death. Lord, there is real danger in the world. There is real persecution. There is real suffering. But we get to be those whose stance is not reactivity to the things that bring us fear, but dependence on the God who has conquered sin, death, and the evil one, so that there is nothing that can rule us in the end, for we are more than conquerors in Christ. Rule us with your love, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.